Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Talking About the War with Hannah and Misha. I'm here today on December 18th with Misha. Hi, Hannah. Hi, how are you doing? Hi, listeners. Hi, listeners, and happy birthday to Steve Bittner. Today is his birthday. Happy birthday, Dad. (laughs) Today's guest is American, and we don't use his real name. We refer to him as Tango, and that's because today's guest is a member of the Foreign Legion, and he fights on behalf of the Ukrainian army, Um, at the very, very front. So today's guest has been in the east of Ukraine, fighting for Ukraine for months now. And between power outages, lack of Wi-Fi, being actively bombed, um, having to take the SIM card out of his phone because he was being targeted by Russian intelligence, a variety of reasons, it was really hard to get an interview scheduled with him, but we succeeded. I'm super excited to talk to Tango. Absolutely. Welcome, Tango. Welcome, Tango. Hey, Tango. (laughs) Hey, how's it going? It's so nice to see you sound and safe and so good looking. Like, uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's so good to see you. Thank you so much for taking time to join us today. And I guess before we get rolling, can you tell the listeners a little bit about who you are? Uh, for sure. So um, I am uh, I'm an American um, and I decided to move to Ukraine before the war happened, uh, about for about six to eight months before, mm-hmm. just as because I had some friends that lived here, and I worked um, as a volunteer English teacher. Mm-hmm. So it was uh, more of a decision to kind of go uh, on a sabbatical from life and get mm-hmm. a chance to travel around mm-hmm. the world, which I had never had before. Um, and when I came here, I made a lot of really good friends and met a lot of mm, awesome students. Um, and prior to that, I had served in the United States military for uh, about eight years or so. Wow. And um, kind of just, I decided I didn't want to be a soldier anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> then the invasion happened. Yeah, the life decided <laughs> yeah. opposite. Yeah. Can you yeah. tell us a little bit about your experience as an American soldier? I mean, it sounds like you served for eight years. It's a pretty long time. Yeah, so I, I was uh, an infantryman um, in a heavy weapons company and also a medic in the Army Reserves. Uh, and I can say that in contrast, for sure, and being a part of here in Ukraine, helping support the military and also working with the military, that I had an incredibly arrogant perspective regarding supply and logistics mm-hmm. uh, and how important it is in winning a war before I came to Ukraine. Sure. So... Mm-hmm. definitely a takeaway for me. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's so interesting to hear about how you moved to Ukraine to teach English and you were going to take a break from being a soldier. And now here you are. I mean, can you share with the listeners like what your position is now in Ukraine? Yeah. So um, for the first part of the war, I really wanted to, uh, I realized that, you know, even if I was the most badass soldier in the world, which I'm not, I'm just sort of a regular dude. Um, that I was still, even if I went and joined the Legion, I was only going to be like one more, one more rifle in the fight, one more gun in the fight. So I, I made a pretty conscious decision and a goal for myself to train about a thousand soldiers before mm-hmm. I went to do anything operationally. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I, I did, I actually accomplished that goal. I'm pretty proud of that. Mm-hmm. Um, we yeah. trained a lot of dudes up in TCCC and standard infantry tactics and more mm-hmm. advanced stuff as well as like reconnaissance special teams and mm-hmm. some um, some more specialized courses as well, anti-tank and uh, forward observers and some JTAC uh, stuff as well. Uh, when I hit the goal, I realized, 
I kind of realized that, hey, you know, there's still a lot of work that needs to be done. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So as I understood first, you were, you, you thought that you will be training people and then that you realized that they need you on the front as well. Yeah, and, you know, it's, it's, it's really true. It's a sort of a combination of a lot of different factors, um, some of which I may go into, some of which I won't. Mm -hmm. okay. But yeah, I mean, I think you would really need sort of a Western, a Western influence here, especially operating in the special team structures, because mm -hmm. a lot of the Ukrainian militaries, uh, unfortunately, still operating in a very Soviet mindset especially not not the the soldiers on the ground not the guys that are fighting in the front but True. the leadership and it's unfortunate because if you if you try to fight soviets with soviet tactics you're going to lose like the soviet tactic is to throw enough bodies at a problem and until mm. you win mm -hmm. and if you don't have enough bodies you're going to lose right which so. we don't that's a really good point yeah that's Tango. a really good point so the 24th of february where you were what what how what was your February 21st? Mm -hmm. uh, so February 24th for me, I was actually in the U.S. Mm -hmm. And uh, then, you know, the night that it happened, we actually started bombing and invading from Belarus. Mm -hmm. I, I stayed awake all night long because mm -hmm. I was getting messages and phone calls from all my mm -hmm. friends and all my students. Uh, in, and they were really worried because, you know, immediately they declared martial law. People were trying to like, evacuate mm -hmm. the, the country, especially in the parts that were being attacked and invaded. It was uh, pretty much mass pandemonium. I didn't sleep all night. I don't think I slept for like two days, mm -hmm. actually. Because I was just mm -hmm. constantly paying attention, seeing if there was anything I could do to help. Yeah. I mean, and then I'm just so curious, like, what happened next? What was your decision-making process about returning to Ukraine. I mean, was it, I don't know, tell us a little bit about that decision-making process. So it's funny because uh, immediately the night that, actually uh, on February 24th, my mom knew that I had a lot of friends and that I really loved and enjoyed being in Ukraine. Mm -hmm. She uh, she came into my room. She was actually the one that woke me up because I was asleep before I had heard about that. And she mm -hmm. said, you're not allowed to go back now oh, because there's no so um, I was just kind of like, okay. Uh, mm -hmm. And so I thought about it really before I went back and I talked to a lot of my, my friends um, there and I sort of started doing a lot of networking on the ground because if anyone who's ever been to Ukraine will know that it's not what you know or who or, or how qualified you are, but it's who you know. That's mm -hmm. anything that gets done here. Um, I kind of started doing a lot of networking and reaching out to humanitarian groups that were helping guys get over there because mm. of the transit, all the transit that I had ever known coming into Ukraine, which was just flying into True. Poland and then into Western Ukraine, was completely shut down. So mm. all the transit lines, all the travel was completely screwed up. Uh, so I started sort of putting uh, together a plan mm -hmm. and figuring out what I could take with me, what I could bring for humanitarian aid mm -hmm. and... Um, after that, I sort of reached out to a lot of local uh, networks in my area that were paying attention to that and were pretty sympathetic to what was happening and, and reached asked for donations. I ended mm -hmm. up bringing, I think, four or five suitcases full of uh, donated medical supplies and mm -hmm. some military equipment with mm -hmm. me as well, mm -hmm. just on my flight. And I remember landing in Poland and... Uh, <laughs> realizing that I had like five duffel bags full of equipment that I was going to have to cart around on a train for the next, you know, 24 hours yeah. as yeah, I got 100%. across the border. That was, in hindsight, not a good decision. 
Luckily, I had a lot of people that helped me out because at the time there were a lot of other foreigners that were Mm -hmm. coming in to help. um, And that was awesome. So. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking about your mom, which, side note, your mom and I are now good buddies on Instagram. She sends me messages about you. Really? On truly, oh truly. <laughs> <laughs> so me and your mom are buddies. And I'm thinking about her coming into your room and being like, you are not mm. going back. And of course, I feel very empathetic towards her. And I also am just wondering, I mean, was there, I don't know, was it an active decision in your mind of like, of course, I'm going back to Ukraine? Did you just was there no other option in your mind? I mean, did you weigh out the cost and benefit kind of analysis? I definitely did. I, you know, I kind of looked at um, like what, not really cost and benefit, but like what I could truly do to help. Sure. And mm-hmm. at the time, I didn't, I didn't quite know. So that's really why I did a lot of research into what organizations were already in country, what which ones had roots there, mm-hmm. how I could plug myself in to do what my original mission, which was a lot of, you know, more training based. Mm-hmm. And um, the more I got into that, the more I realized, hey, there is a really an opportunity for me to, to go here and to help. Mm-hmm. And, and instead of me just showing up and, you know, kind of adding to right. the refugee crisis, which right. was in in Western Ukraine, mm-hmm. um, pretty bad at the, at the time. So, mm-hmm. I was kind of like, I don't want to show up and just be another refugee, right. you know, a foreign refugee, especially like that would be really bad for me and really bad for Absolutely. other people Absolutely. Uh, that really needed help 100%. in that regard more than I did. So that's a big part of my decision was if I was going to go back, it was going to be for a, a very dedicated mission. Mm-hmm. One that I, a number one, had the ability to uh, complete, mm-hmm. you know, in a relative perspective mm-hmm. and, and be one that I had the opportunity and the ability to work with other groups through Mm -hmm. for networking. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I appreciate so much that you bring that theme up of like, I didn't want to add to the burden of the country returning to Ukraine as a foreigner because, you know, you and I, neither of us are Ukrainian. And I think like, it's so good to hear you say that and also to identify, but you have a very, very specific skill set that is of great use to the country. And I mean, maybe that's a good segue into kind of touching on how we all met one another. I mean, would you like to tell the listeners how you met Misha and I? <laughs> Absolutely. So um, when I when I first got to Ukraine, I was pretty much um, taking any training opportunity that I could get to train in uh, TCCC, which is tactical combat casualty care. Mm-hmm. It's um, very basic uh, soldier medicine. Basically, it identifies how to you know, do trauma assessments, how to move casualties away from uh, imminent danger areas, mm-hmm. uh, provide trauma assessments to them, and provide life-sustaining care to anybody who might be injured in a combat environment and basically to stabilize them until paramedics can get on scene and evacuate them to a higher tier of care. Mm-hmm. So uh, in that regard, I was doing this training around Western Ukraine, I was taking the opportunity to go anywhere, make a network with, uh, and kind of make uh, connections with anybody that I could Mm -hmm. to meet up with um, people for just more opportunities to train and help people with this. Mm -hmm. Um, Luckily now, I'm happy to say that the country is pretty much saturated with TCCC, which is awesome. Awesome. Everyone should know it. This is basic stuff. Like every, even every civilian in America should know this stuff because you literally never know when you might have to provide Mm -hmm. some pretty critical care to somebody. Uh, You're actually far more likely to die in a car accident than you are (laughs) from getting shot. 
in, in the majority of the world just because totally. it's a more regular um, sort of occurrence. Mm-hmm. And it's uh, sort of a funny fact that goes along with that. You're actually more likely to be killed by a cow than you are by a shark. So, oh. you know. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, I'm going to think on that next time I go surfing. <laughs> it's, it's true. It's true. It is actually true. strange, but true. Just statistics. Wild. But so a lot of that, I, I really, um, you know, when I was doing this training, I, uh, was working, like I said, through one of the groups that I had met mm-hmm. in um, Western Ukraine, and they ended up finding a group or a military unit in Uzgrad that needed some teachable C training. So I had just acquired a van, which I still have, and yes. I'm still driving. Around. It's awesome. It's one of my one of my vehicles that I have now in Ukraine. I yes. feel that my calling after the war in Ukraine, I'm probably going to be like a used car salesman. <laughs> <laughs> yes. um, so uh, uh, we drove down, me and my other my team of medics that I had with me, mm-hmm. we drove down to Uzgrad and we met you guys, and you were awesome. We trained some uh, some of the units, and uh, actually, unfortunately, we weren't able to complete the training with that unit because in the middle of it, they were activated mm-hmm. to, to the front. Yes, 100%. Can you tell us, I mean, you're a part of the Foreign Legion now, and can you tell us when you're on the east and at the front, what does a normal day look like for you? So it's very strange. And um, so uh, I, I really don't know how to describe it exactly. I can say that this this war is nothing like anything that Americans have, ever exper- have experienced in the last 100 years or so. Um, we, a lot, and I've met so many Westerners that come in with the perspective of, oh, I've done this. I've been a soldier my entire life and myself included. You know, I really did. I kind of came in with like, hey, I've got this uh, an incredible amount of experience mm-hmm. to come in and help. But the uh, it's the tempo is different. The pace of things is totally changing mm-hmm. in the sense that uh, I can have, you know, three, four days in a row where I'm sitting somewhere in a safe house, not doing anything. Mm-hmm. And then you know, one, like my team leader will come back and be like, Hey, in two hours, we have a, we have a 72 hour op package stuff. Let's go. Mm-hmm. And it has, it kind of has to be like that. It's very frustrating because I like to be prepared for stuff. I like sure. to be like, all right, you know, Hey, we're going to go do this. This is the mission brief. Be prepared for it. Mm-hmm. Okay. I've got this, this, and this, this is a specific mission. These are the extra items that I need to pack for this specific mission. Mm-hmm. But it's not like that. It's pretty much, you have to be in a constant state of readiness yeah. because you're only going to get that amount of warning because of the lines, because the tempo of this war is so incredibly changing mm-hmm. that by the time you get intelligence on an op, an op or a mission or something like that, you're going to have to act on it within 24 hours or mm-hmm. you're not going to have the opportunity to do it anymore Okay. Mm-hmm. because everything changes that quick. Okay. So it's, uh, it's, a, it's a lot of hurry up and wait and mm-hmm. uh, pack your shit and let's go mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. like on an instant pretty Understood. much. Mm-hmm. So that's... Kind of a, t- a t- there's no typical day. Sure. I guess yeah. I could say. <laughs> Can you describe like any one operation, like 72 hours? Like you know, like did you hold the ground? Did you? Can you describe, if you can, like what was that? Like mm-hmm. I'm just like curious, like how it looks like. Yeah, I can describe. Uh, I can describe vaguely. Vaguely, vaguely. yeah. So, for the most part. Um, the intel that we have in the in the east is that we're kind of operating against some of the higher tier Russian forces mm-hmm. there, uh, and the Ukrainian units are, you know, from the start as they always have been, kind of outgunned and outmanned. Sure. Um, they're operating against dudes that have a lot more specialized equipment than they do, 
and it's difficult for them. So mm-hmm. uh, some of the foreign legion teams that have been operating in the area typically sort of will infill and embed with Ukrainian units and then uh, continually work with them to help improve the situation, whether that is holding a position or advancing on positions. Um, Luckily for Ukraine, they have something that's called the defender's advantage. Mm -hmm. And statistically speaking, for any defender, it takes three um, like aggressors to mm-hmm. overwhelm a position. So mm-hmm. the majority of the war, it's it's strange. It really, I'm, I'm a big fan of history, and it really brings me back to like the medieval ages, where mm-hmm. you know you would sit in a castle basically and sure. wait for your enemy to come to you, and then just kind of fuck them up mm-hmm. really good every time you tried. Mm-hmm. And that's that's pretty much you know what's what's happening on the front, and that's mm-hmm. a good thing. Mm-hmm. You know that's that's. It's really good for the Ukrainians because right. all they have to do is sit and wait and then shoot the Russians when they try to, you know, do something stupid. Mm-hmm. So um, a lot of that is sort of um, keeping the fight on that level mm-hmm. for the Ukrainians because they're really good at doing that. They hold the positions very well. But when they're instigated on the other end with, you know, sort of more advanced technology or special teams or trained teams, it makes it a lot harder for them to do that. So mm-hmm. a lot of um, our mission is to supplement mm-hmm. the uh, the ability to counteract a lot of the special uh, assets that mm-hmm. Russia has been pushing. Gotcha. Oh, okay. Okay. okay so. I know you mentioned too before we hit record. You were talking about how you call this war a GoFundMe war, and I thought that was just the perfect way of <laughs> yeah. describing it. So, can you kind of tell us what you mean by GoFundMe war? Yeah, so when I say it's a GoFundMe war, it's sort of a it's a common statement among all of the, especially all the Westerners there, and it's and even Ukrainians. Like mm-hmm. you know, you notice every Ukrainian's like a group or or whatever a special group. They all have TikToks. They have you know GoFundMe. Mm-hmm. They have this. They have that. They post videos on Instagram. Mm-hmm. And although that is an incredible breach of OSEC, which I don't necessarily agree with, sure. uh, it's also unfortunately something that kind of has to be done because the asset distribution within the country is just very strange. Mm-hmm. And I, I, don't know, I don't know exactly what to attribute it to, um, but a lot of the units on the front are fighting with basically nothing. Mm-hmm. You know, they're, they're lucky to get food and, and bullets, but you'll see p- places in the West that are totally geared, just kitted to the, to the teeth. They've mm-hmm. got everything, but it's not where it needs to be. And sure. I understand, you know, with, in relation to, the prospect of being invaded by Belarus in places like Kiev and, you know, um, Lutsk and Rivnin and mm-hmm. stuff like that, you know, those units, they have, because it's a preemptive sort of, you know, um, action in the event that they are invaded from that area, but there mm-hmm. are places in the West that just, the guys are totally kitted out. And it's like, I, I see guys, uh, people on block posts with night vision devices, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and it's like, why the heck do you need that? Mm-hmm. So probably they got it. There's dudes in the front that, that don't have night vision devices that need it that can mm-hmm. literally save positions being taken. I think I have an explanation for that because those guys who are in the West and uh, they are on Terra Barana, like the territorial defense, mm-hmm. and probably yeah. they got the night goggles or night vision devices or drones by themselves or their relatives chips in mm-hmm. and they bought for for their for their nephew 
the old chip tin and well, right. I think Misha, you're making the yeah. actually the original point, which yeah, is this which is, is go a GoFundMe war, war, which has pros yeah, and cons. And a pro totally is that exactly. there might be a soldier who's drafted and he might mm-hmm. be totally kitted out with everything he needs because this is a GoFundMe war. His relatives chipped in, his friends, yeah. and then it sounds like you're kind of talking about Tango that there's like a negative aspect to this as well. That there may be people on the front whose GoFundMe mm-hmm. quotes around that wasn't as successful. Right. And so that also kind of brings me back to my original point. Um, one of the things that I had said, or not original point, but one of the things that I had said prior that I really didn't appreciate the uh, logistics perspective of sure. fighting a major war um, mm-hmm. before I came here. Because sure. I will say something about the U.S. is that the logistics machine that we have and the equipment that we have is is awesome. Yeah. Like, I, I never when I was in the U.S. military, once had to worry about whether or not I was going to eat mm-hmm. or whether or not I was going to have food sure. or whether or not I was going to have the gear that I needed to accomplish the mission that I had. Mm-hmm. For the most part, you know, very small degrees of, of that. Right. But yeah, it's definitely a GoFundMe war. Um, mm-hmm. It's strange. Even even as I've come here to Ukraine, I've, I've noticed that. Mm-hmm. And when I was doing training and even in operations, I've, I've noticed there's a severe lack of, number one, vehicles. I bought, yeah. I bought two vehicles here myself, personally, just out mm-hmm. of my own pocket. To use for operations, mostly you know mm-hmm. for, for supplies, and then, and then a couple for the uh, the front as well. Yeah. Because once you get out, once you get out east, it's significantly harder to maneuver, especially driving through areas like Zeeum and uh, Lyman and mm-hmm. areas there, because the roads are so destroyed from anti-tank mines and mm-hmm. in artillery that getting around there and then driving into the actual operational areas, which typically aren't in the cities they're in some pretty pretty rough areas you, know, you need number mm-hmm. one a four by four vehicle yeah. one that you can um one that you can depend on uh, a lot of them aren't present in ukraine uh, so you have to buy them sort of from abroad yeah. there are a lot of donated vehicles and number two it typically it needs to be a diesel vehicle mm-hmm. because if uh, any vehicle that you have that's gas either liquid petroleum or you know gasoline power if it gets hit by any sort of high explosive it's going to immediately detonate it's going to blow up right. and right. diesel has a much lower flash point so right. you have okay. to operate on that mm-hmm. uh, that level so that you don't turn your you know your mode of transportation into uh you know a moving bomb yeah. with you and all your buddies at yeah I think I appreciate so much bringing up the GoFundMe war and also the practical aspect of why are vehicles so necessary in this war in Ukraine right now. Because I think a lot of foreigners, it's hard, I'm speaking for Americans, it's hard for Americans sometimes to understand, like, why don't the Ukrainian soldiers have everything they need? Like, why isn't the Ukrainian government providing it for them? And then I think, too, like understanding why vehicles are needed. Sometimes foreigners, again, might think, well, why don't the soldiers have everything they need? So I appreciate you so much bringing it up from your perspective as a soldier on the front because, I mean, it's quite literally what me and Misha are constantly raising money for is, you know. We're donating our personal money truly like to a lot of vehicles. Like when yeah. some friend on the front were just like, okay, guys, our our group needs a vehicle and like everybody okay here's my hundred bucks yeah it's vehicles or raising money for yeah practical needs of mm. soldiers and i think that's why i so much appreciate you bringing up the gofundme war aspect so is there yeah, a that's really true how do you and think so something um something else to really consider about vehicles there's a large there's a big influx there a big demand for mm. civilian vehicles in this regard because um like i had kind of mentioned before russian Surveillance and electronic warfare is very, very effective. Mm-hmm. Uh, when they're flying with oil and drones, they 
if they see something that looks special, they make it a target. And I'll tell you this, Russia has no shortage of ballistic missiles Mm -hmm. and things to hit anything. So a lot of the armored vehicles, especially anything that looks westernized, anything Mm -hmm. western that's donated, armored vehicles, Humvees, Michelles, any of it, Mm -hmm. it, if it's out in the open long enough for it to be seen, it will be targeted. So to to blend in and to not look special Mm -hmm. makes a big difference. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. In the regard of that, because if there's something that looks like an asset, like a special asset, it's mm-hmm. going to get hit, guaranteed. That's a really good point. Uh, so that's another reason why there's there's an increased demand for um, soldiers operating with just typical regular vehicles, even right. if they're not a farmer, even if they don't have protection. Right. Because it's better to blend in than to stand out when you're constantly being watched. Gotcha. That makes so much sense. So yeah. as a front eyes, what... Can you tell what what will be the best for Ukraine? What will uh, make Ukraine win faster? Like what supplies? Yeah, like, you know, what, maybe not supplies, maybe, like, what would help Ukraine to win faster? The best thing for Ukraine to invest in? Let's see. Gosh, I have to be careful with how I answer this. Mm-hmm. Sure. Or maybe we can rephrase <laughs> right, it. What's yeah. the thing that foreigners should be raising money for? We'll say it that way. This is not really an infantry war. It's not a lot of soldiers that are fighting each other. It's mostly an an artillery war. So I would say the things that they kind of have, people have been donating are a lot of, um, sorry, a lot of vests, vests, uh, flak vests, and things that protect from fragmentation and military and medical equipment as well. That's a really big one. Um, And especially now that the winter is setting in, any kind of warm kit, any kind of layering, any kind of, Winter sleeping bags, mm-hmm. winter boots, all of it. Trust me, I've Absolutely. been there on ops on the front, and I've been freezing Oof. to death. Like it's, it was, it's, it's awful. It's miserable. Yeah. Aside from specialized equipment, yeah. You know, if you guys want to want to throw, uh, you know, like ten or twenty thousand dollars in in a certain direction for some nice thermal optics for my team or anything like that, Absolutely. you know, that'd be great. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, really expensive, and I. I would rather say, ah, you know, we'll just do it without it and, um, right. you know, give give that money to the regular troops because they need it more. Sure. Totally. I guess in that kind of same vein, what would you like to share with American listeners? I mean, you also yourself are American. Is there something in particular, a certain message you'd like to share with people as we kind of come to a close? Yeah, absolutely. I would say that, um, you know, for American, American listeners, number one, um, there's, I know it's not as prevalent as it used to be, but if you're going to come over here and try to help out in the war, mm-hmm. make sure that number one, you have the ability to do it mm-hmm. financially, uh, you know, and, and like in every other aspect as well. Like, mm-hmm. don't come over here and be a burden, just like I said at the beginning of it. Yeah. And number two, make sure that you're able to do it. And you're not going to come over here and give the rest of us a bad name. If you're going to come over here and be a cowboy, just stay home. <laughs> well said. I second that. <laughs> And I guess before we totally come to a close, too, I mean, how are you doing? Like, you have been on the front for a long time. Like, how are you doing? I'm tired. Yeah. <laughs> Good grief. I haven't had a hot shower in, like, a month. Oh, it would be nice. So, yeah, I mean, uh, I'm okay. I'm alive. I'm well. You know, I'm not sick, mm-hmm. which is great. You know, which not is anymore, great. anyways. But, you know. I'm, I'm, I'm good. I'm, I'm feeling good. 
Tangos, that's a pleasure to know you. Thank you so much for what you're doing for Ukraine. Thank you for your work. Thank you for your work. Thank you, we'll see you in person someday. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Bye. Tango is badass. Absolute badass. I'm just shocked. I have like goosebumps. Goosebumps. Thank you, Tango, for all the work you're doing as an American fighting on behalf of Ukraine. Absolutely incredible. I'm including Tango's PayPal information in the episode description. All donations will go towards buying night vision equipment and winter warming supplies for his troops. So please help if you can. Thank you, everyone, for listening. See you. Slava Ukraini. Slava. Батко наш Україна мати, ми за Україну будемо воювати. Батко наш пандера, Україна мати. You can't get off a little of that. Yeah, no, it's good. Okay, anyway. Okay, anyway.